Father, we do take just this moment again to acknowledge that you are the great giver of all things and that there is no change in you. So when you promise us your faithfulness, Lord, you remain faithful. We acknowledge that everything we have comes from you. We gladly offer back a portion of this that you might use it to continue to build your kingdom, that the name of Jesus would be named throughout all of creation, and that you would, be, you would receive all glory, honor, and praise. So receive this this morning, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. If you would, turn in your scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we will be picking up where we left off last time I had the privilege of speaking. 1 Peter chapter 1. So this actually turned into a series. And we are on part 2. Who knows, there may be a part 3 a couple months down the road. So again, 1 Peter. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word picking up in chapter 1, verse 10, and reading through the end of chapter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, keeping sober-minded, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, the blood of Christ, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. This ends the reading of God's word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to cherish it as we ought to. This is the very word of God, not our word. And whether we accept it or believe it is not optional. We are your children, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us faith to receive from our Father in heaven, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you've noticed, but when I get the chance to preach, I have been trying to include our young people. I know we're an older church, but we have some young people, most of them down front here this morning, actually. That's great, because I have an assignment for you, and I, can't, I don't have the authority to assign anything, so I have a request of you. I have a challenge for you. When I was in college, 
I was given an assignment to outline the book of Mark. And I had to outline the book of Mark using nothing but newspaper headlines. Now, y'all are so young, you don't, might not know newspapers, but they used to come to your house every day, and they would have headlines on them. So you'd see Superman saves ship or something. You know, stock market falls, Titanic sinks, something. So we were given a limit of five words and told to come up with some concise way to describe all the different various episodes or anecdotes through the book of Mark. And I, being very literal, I mean, no problem, right? Jesus walked on the water, man walks on water. Not very creative, but it fulfilled the requirements of the assignment. Some are more creative or clever than I have ever been, and one stuck in my mind just because in Mark chapter 1, you remember where uh, Jesus with his early disciples went to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and she had a fever, and Jesus healed her. And then it said, and so she got up and began to wait on them. And I thought nothing of that, you know, Jesus healed sick woman. Very, very boring, very, you know, literal. Somebody else said, fever gone, dinner on. Okay? That's stuck in my head all these years. You know, I don't know if there's any theological depth to that one other than Jesus healing someone and showing who he is as the Son of God. But I thought that, no, that's clever. And so what I would challenge you, even though we're not preaching in Mark, Mark is a very action-oriented book. I would like you to take Mark chapter 5, and homeschooling parents write this down in case they don't. Mark chapter 5, there's three or four various stories in Mark chapter 5 all woven together, so it's not too much. But I'd like you to give me, in writing if you would, headlines for Mark chapter 5. Now, my inability to complete that assignment cleverly continues today. You think school has nothing to do with modern times. Well, for me, it just shows my failures. Because I come to titles, and I don't know how to title sermons. Um, And to make it worse, titles are always due before the sermon's done. Because we have to get the bulletin printed. So we have a text, and I generally know what's being preached on, but there's sometimes teachings just take on more life. And so I say today is part two, but for people who observe the bulletin well, the last time I preached, we preached from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 9, but I titled it A Living Hope. And that's legitimate because it is, it is in our text. But by the, as I was preaching the sermon, as that very morning was taking place, it just struck me that what Peter's doing here is telling us of a complete salvation, beginning to end all the work of God. So if I were going to go back today, preach that sermon, turn in that title, it would be a complete salvation part one, and this morning would be a complete salvation part two. I believe they're tied together. I believe the whole epistle is tied together, obviously. But there is a unit here. And so this morning, we have a complete salvation, part two. Let me give you just a little bit of review from the first nine verses. When you preach three months apart, uh, memories tend to fade a little bit. Mine, too. Had to go back through my notes. Okay, so this is not meant to talk condescendingly to you as if you can't remember anything, but it's been a while, so let's bridge the gap just a little bit. Let's preach that previous sermon over again, and we'll try to do it in three minutes. Um, Peter, Peter writing here, not... Paul, Peter writing here, two believers who are living as exiles and strangers. The fact is that the gospel was preached to them, they came to faith in Christ, and it changed them. And they no longer fit among the people that they did fit among prior to that, because God makes a difference. Okay, This is not just the acceptance of one more religious faith or one more practice that we set up on a shelf next to all our little idols here. You know, That's what they came from. This is calling people not just to salvation but to a new existence, and they no longer fit in the world as they did before, and so they were facing pressures, facing social pressures, maybe business pressures. They themselves were just feeling a little more out of whack with the world they once fit in. Uh, 
And so Peter writes to encourage them, reminding them of how great a salvation God has accomplished in them and for them. We see in those first nine chapters, just in summary here, we see the entire ordo salutis. That means we see the entire work of salvation as God intended it to be from before history to the end of, end of everything. <laughs> to the end of the entire order salutis. When God set his love upon a people before the beginning of time itself and decided, I will save them, sent his son to redeem them, sent his spirit to call them and to quicken them, to make them alive so that they were born again. And not only that, promised to be with them now and that he would reward them with an inheritance in the heavenlies that is beyond all measure. You see the whole picture of salvation that is clearly taught in the first nine verses. The entire Ordo Salutis is comprehensively, if not exhaustively, mentioned there. And this whole work of salvation should give us a settled security in the now. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. Our failures don't somehow diminish God's ability. Our sin does not outweigh or overpower his grace. It is a complete salvation upon the objects of God's affection, and he will accomplish it. So what kind of security can that give you now? Well, you know, the little pressures, <laughs> they just shouldn't matter so much. The winds, the things that would upset your boat, you learn to look at those things as they're not such a big deal. I am safe and secure in the hands of God. It is a complete salvation, a settled security. And so we live, as we saw in those first nine verses, in hope, and we can even walk in joy despite present circumstances as we look to the future. Now, don't you wish we'd have preached that sermon that quickly the first time? That's a complete salvation, part one. Part two is going to take us a little more time. Moving forward, as we get to our text, I want to read verses 10 through 12, and I don't have them included in our primary section today of 13 through 25, but they're somewhat transitional. They bridge the gap, so to speak, because Peter was speaking of a complete salvation, and in verse 10 he says, And to this salvation, this salvation we've been talking about, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiry. So this is not a new thing. It is a new thing, but it's not a new thing. And I like this. There is a new stage here that has been completed by the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension and the accomplishment of the salvation which God had appointed from before time. It is a new stage. There is progress in this history of redemption. Yes, but it is not disconnected from all that came before because it speaks of the prophets who spoke of what was to come. They didn't know everything, you notice, They didn't know the specific person or the time that God was going to accomplish these things, but they did know that God was going to accomplish these things. He had promised that he would do certain things to accomplish his purposes. And so we see here the Old Testament prophetic witness of the Christ to come. Not in every detail, but notice the unity. What God spoke of and promised in the Old Testament, he brought to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should give us great confidence that what he promises now, based on what he has done in Christ, we can have a confidence in even in the future. Okay, There is a consistency in the Old Testament. It is the same spirit at work in those preaching the gospel now who was the spirit at work in the prophets who were declaring that this would come in the future. And so these things are tied together in a certain continuity and unity. And I think this is an important note regarding the unity of the scriptures because the Old Testament is not irrelevant. 
It broadens your mind. It tells you something of the character of God. It shows you what he has been doing, not just what he now has done and what he's going to do. It makes a bigger picture. And I say that because, well, two reasons. One, dispensational teaching separates improperly the Old Testament from the New, and that is something that we reject here. Okay. Two, it has become in popular culture within the last two years. Some famous TV preacher said, we just need to disconnect the New Testament from the Old and disregard it altogether. And I'm telling you, that is a very dangerous, dangerous teaching. We understand the New in conjunction with the Old. It is one story. There is a unity to the Scriptures, and it needs to be stressed. Yes, there is growth and change, but there is continuity or unity. And so we do not just skip these sections. And we do not throw out the Old Testament. So, as we're moving forward through verses 10 to 12, so great is this salvation, its promise and fulfillment. You'll notice that last phrase, into which angels long to look. I think that's a better interpreter to say that they delight to see it accomplished. Okay, Do they know what's about to come, even though some of the prophets don't? I don't know. Okay, but I know it's almost as if they're sitting up there on the, you know, in, 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 the, in the whatever, in the gallery, watching, knowing that God has promised to do some things. God is out to glorify himself in the salvation of a people, and they're almost on the edge of their seats. They delight to see what God is doing. They delight to see him accomplishing his purposes, and they are thrilled to watch it worked out. Now, that takes care of the first 12 verses. I have to say now something you have heard, I'm sure, of the indicative and the imperative, have you not? If you've been around here long enough, you probably have the indicative and the imperative. The indicative and the imperative distinction has to do with ways of writing, which Peter and Paul use throughout their epistles. The indicative is just when they're writing and making a whole bunch of statements, or they're expressing doctrines. They're making propositions, premises, statements that they believe to be true. But they're basically statement of fact. They're just statements. Okay, as glorious as they are, they're statements. When they cross over then to the imperatives, then they're giving commands based upon those statements. So the imperative is simply a command. Again, young people, like when they tell you, clean your room. Just do it. Just do it. No, I'm not singling anyone out by looking here, Owen. Don't. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not. Um, Okay, so the indicative and the imperative. Now, this is one of the ways we see a difference between Peter and Paul, because Paul actually divides his epistles somewhat in half between the indicative and imperative, and he, like, gathers them all together, the indicatives up front. So when you read Ephesians, the first three chapters really are Paul's indicative, his statements, his doctrines. Not, ex- not only, there's a little overlap, but primarily. And then when he gets to t- chapter 4 in Ephesians, he says, therefore now, walk. And he tells us how to walk. Um, this is consistent with, with Paul, uh, not always half. You know, Romans, the first 11 chapters are indicative, and then 12 through 16 are more imperative. But with Peter, he's a little different, because he gives us in, in, indicatives and then imperatives woven. He crosses back and forth throughout his letters. And so what we have here in verse 13 is we're getting to this first section then of imperatives. He has already given us this doctrine of a complete salvation, but now he's telling us how now shall we live. What do we do with this day by day? What are the principles with which we walk in this world in which we no longer fit? And so he brings us, starting in verse 13, we're going to look at this as briefly as possible, divided into four sections, and I know that's not Trinitarian, but the fact is, 
as we go through this passage, we have four primary verbs. There are other, other parts of grammar here that also bear the weight of commands, but there's only four primary verbs that are, are actually imperatives, and we're going to look at those today. So the first one is in verse 13, where it says to set your minds uh, or fix your minds in the NAS. Verse 15, be holy as I am holy. Verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear. Verse 22, love one another. Okay, so there's our four points, and we will dive in. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action, or preparing your minds for action and keeping sober-minded, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, completely, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's your command. But before he states the command, he gives us two precursors or predecessors. And he calls us to a certain amount of preparation and then self-discipline in our minds. Um, Sharp-mindedness, clear-headedness. So two preparations or two predecessors. Preparation and self-discipline. He starts off preparing your minds for action. There's a neat picture here because the literal interpretation is girding up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't know much today about girding up our loins. Because we don't generally do this. Uh, we don't walk around in nice flowing robes in our leisure. Not at my house. <laughs> so, but that was common in the first century. And so when they had to do something that was less leisurely, like if they had to take a trip, if they had to walk briskly, if they had to get to work, if they had to go to battle, they would gather up the looseness of their robes and they would tuck it into the belt around their waist. And so a very different look now, but and also very different utilitarianism. Okay, so they would take this, and what they were doing is getting ready, so there's preparation here, but they were also eliminating things that would hinder them from their performance. And in this, I can't help but see, in this picture that we're given, you can't help but think of Hebrews 12, 1, where we are told to lay aside every encumbrance, see, getting rid of the things that hinder, lay aside every encumbrance and eliminating sin, so that we might run with endurance, is what Hebrews tells us. But here there is just preparation. So when he gets to our command to set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us, he's telling you first prepare, and it starts in your mind. You know, an awful lot of things, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, because I think we're major more on feelings, but they start right up here. There's a decision to be made. And he's telling you, get ready. Gird up the loins of your mind for what I'm about to tell you. Anything that would distract you from this, any other voices that would enter your head from other sources here, try to, try to block them out. It's hard to do in a time like ours when the news is 24-7. I know some people who sit around and watch the news, and boy, it drives them into a panic. You know, we might have a hurricane 12 days out, and they're convinced their house is going to collapse. And they're worked up for 12 days only to find out it went four states away. Okay? Block it out. Prepare your minds for action. This idea of keeping or being sober is very much connected. It's a clear-headedness. It is to not allow yourself to be under an improper influence. You know, like when we're, when we're under the influence of alcohol, that's probably not the best thing to do if you're preparing to do a surgery. It's an improper influence. It's not that all drinking is evil, but don't be under its influence. So whatever the improper influence is, we are not to be persuaded by the wrong thing, whether they be lies of an ungodly society or enticements of the world around you or the pressure of your friends. Whatever this is, you are to be sober-minded. 
You are to discern between the thoughts and the influences that come, and you are to set aside the good, embrace, set aside the evil, embrace the good, preparing your minds for action. Now, having done this, having prepared yourself, having gotten into the state of being mentally disciplined that you might reject the untruths and see the truths, now we get to our first commandment. Now, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is where you be decisive. Make up your minds to believe in the promises of God. The same God who spoke in the Old Testament and said, here's what I'm going to do. I can't remember who the football coach was, but he said, here's what we're going to do. Stop us. And we're going to keep doing it until you stop us. God said, here's what I'm going to do, and he did it. So knowing that, set your hope fully on the promises of God based on his record Set your hope fully on the promises of God, even for the future. This text is forward-looking. Fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has made promises for you for the return of Christ, even now. Remember, we talked about an inheritance. An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Still out there ahead. Set your minds fully. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you. Make up your mind to believe in the promises of God for now and for the future. He has done all that he said he will do up to this point, and he will do all that he says he will do. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. There is an emphasis on the mind over the feelings here. Make up your mind. Make up your mind. And then just let the feelings follow. I'm not saying your feelings are unimportant. I'm saying they need to be put in their proper place. Make up your mind and let the feelings follow. We will trust in the promises of God. Okay, that is imperative number one. Imperative number two, dropping down to verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Your command, your imperative, be holy in all your conduct. Does this leave anything out? In all your behavior, in all your conduct, in all that you do, be holy. Now, here we don't have two precursors, we have one. One. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts of your ignorance. Okay, you, li- you used to live differently. Before you knew- Except you covenant children who, by the grace of God, have not known a day when God was not helping you. What a blessing. I used to look at, I I was a covenant child. I was not in a covenant church, but I grew up in the church, and for a long time it bothered me that I didn't have some dramatic testimony as if it would be a good thing to be a drug addict or something. You know, that guy's got the testimony. You guys are so privileged. and, And there is so much pain that comes with sin that you can avoid if you just keep your eyes focused on him. Look what he's doing for you. Look what he's doing. Man, cherish it. Be holy. Do not be conformed to the passions or lusts of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to your sinful way of life in that way which you used to live before God opened your eyes to see that there is so much more to be had. Disconnected from God. Don't let yourself, and this is interesting because this word conformed, same word we see in Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed. To be conformed has a couple different expressions or connotations. One, don't be absorbed. 
It always reminds me of Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. The commercials for my, you know, where they'd stick the, the paper towel in the cup and you'd see, you know, the, the, the liquid was just laying there, just minding its own business, absorbed, conformed. Now, the other idea of conformed just has to do with being pressed into a certain shape. And again, water's interesting for that because you pour water in something, it'll take the shape of whatever it's in. Okay? One way or the other, or metal being bent around a form to shape something. Don't be conformed. You have a responsibility here. Don't be conformed. Don't allow yourself to be pressed back into your former self. Don't allow yourself to be drawn back into your former self by the pressures or by influences, whether they come from our lusts and our passions that it mentions it here or whether it comes from things that are just comfortable and familiar to us. Isn't that one of the tough ones? It is for me. As I get older, it's just so easy to be drawn back into where I was comfortable. You know, it's like, it's like the children of you know, the Israelites coming out of Egypt. What did they do? Oh, we had it so good in, in Egypt. We had meat in our pots. We had onions and leeks to eat. Like you had a guy with a whip at your backs. You had chains on your necks. Don't be drawn back. Keep looking forward. Don't let yourself be conformed. Don't let yourself be, be absorbed. Don't go back to just the comfortable. Press ahead. This happens to us without realizing it, but we are now children of God, not children of wrath, not children of the world, not products of, of, of the pressures around you. You know, there is a sense in which the behavioralists are right. You know, your, your, your circumstances do very much determine who you are in a worldly sense only. But God, God has made a difference now. Don't go back. Don't be conformed. Now, having been given this, do not be conformed, we get to our command. And note the familial language as we started, verse 14, as obedient children. See, you were as enemies of God. You were objects of his wrath. But he has set his love upon you and called you to himself, and you are his beloved child. Now, as children of God, it's time for us to take up the family likeness. That's all this is. Here's your, here's your command. Be holy. Be holy as I am. As your Father is holy. As your Father is holy. Make it your goal to be like your daddy. Now, I understand in an earthly level, we haven't all had great fathers. We have to kind of pick and choose where our fathers sometimes err. Okay? But in as much as they're reflecting the goodness of God, and then amplify that because how much more your Father in heaven... Be holy as he is. Make it your goal to emulate your heavenly father. And your heavenly father, if he is nothing else, he's holy. And holiness is totally unstained. <laughs> and I can't, I can't even imagine. I don't even know how to explain that when it comes to God. Totally unstained. By what? <laughs> what could touch him? Totally unstained, but then also proactively righteous. Shall not the God of all the universe do what is right Absolutely, in every situation. So that's your goal. Be holy as he is holy. Holiness for us includes the ideas both of separation and consecration. Separation from something, consecration to something. So what is that? Well, separation from the world. Separation from things outside these walls. Separation from things outside the people of God or the work that God has done. He has called you and made you new. Separation from the old. There's a lot of things we have to leave aside. And hey, that's not a heavy cost. 
That's not a heavy cost. You know what I learned from the world out there? I learned how to swear. <laughs> I learned how to treat people wrong. I learned how to lie, cheat, and steal. What am I, what am I giving up? Separation from the world and the influences out there. In consecration to my heavenly Father who is holy. He himself is holy. This, this quote that you get right here in verse 16 says, You shall be holy for I am holy comes from Leviticus 20, 26. Thus you are to be holy. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the people to be mine. Apart from the, see, see the, the separation and consecration there? Set apart from the people to be mine. That is the story he repeated over and over and over in Leviticus as he's giving his law to the people and he has called them out of Egypt, leading them to a land full of pagans, and he's saying, come out of them. Be different than them. Be separate from them. Be holy. Trust me in this. He said, you follow this laws, and all these will envy you and say, oh, what, what, what a God they must have who gives such wise laws, who shows them how to live. Think about it. God made life. This is the instruction manual on how to live that life to its fullest. And everything less than that is just a pale copy at best. Okay, you want to live life to the full? You want to get satisfaction out of life? Then come out of it and be holy. Following the dictates, yes, yes, we're not a legalistic church, we'll get to that in a moment, but following the dictates of your father who knows how life is to be lived because he designed it and he designed you for it. Come out of her and be separate and emulate your father. You were called out of the world and all that that means and joined to God and all that that means for communion with him. But he's not changing to come to you. You know, in holy, you want to draw near to God, be holy. Come out of the world and be separate. This is uh, not just an Old Testament thing, and I like to throw this in because people say, well, that's, you know, the law, that's the Old Testament. Leviticus, that's the Old Testament. And yet in 1 John, the apostle of love in chapter 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. It's an Old and a New Testament thing. It's a Bible thing. There's a consistency. It's one plan of God. It's one word of God. It's the old and the new. Come out of them and be separate. I'm curious on this point. What are you more influenced by, the world or the word? And don't get me wrong. I'm not, I purposely am going to avoid a whole lot of specifics here because I'm not giving you a list whereby you can make yourself acceptable to God. Because <laughs> we, we tend to fall back into that sense of legalism, do we not? But yet to evaluate ourselves once in a while, do you listen to the world? Do you listen to the word? When you wake up in the morning, do you first grab your phone and check the headlines? Or do you do whatever is necessary to go and, and spend time in the word? You know, and, and not everybody does a morning quiet time. I'm not trying to say you should. You know, the Bible gives us those examples. Jesus often prayed in the mornings, morning and evening. Okay, so there's a lot of good in it. But where are the influences to your mind coming from? Your mind, your heart, your affections, your will. Where is it coming from? The world or the word? That's commandment number two. Commandment number three, dropping down to verse 17. If you address his father, the one who imparts you see the familial language again? Father, father, father. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. Conduct yourselves in or with fear during the time of your stay on the earth. Walk in fear. Walk in fear. I, a couple sermons ago, I did a little bit deeper dive on the fear of the Lord for believers. 
Um, and let me just say, I'm not going to do all that again. Let me just acknowledge that, yes, the Scriptures teach us that perfect love casts out all fear. I understand that. We now can enter into the very presence of God because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We can come, and we're told to come with confidence to our Father. I get that. But it's the same Scripture, is it not, that tells us here then, as believers, whom Peter's talking to, believers. Same Scripture. Conduct yourselves in fear. Fear of your Father. Come to your Father in confidence. Come in fear. How does that work? How does that work? There has to be room in our theology of God for the fear of the Lord. Okay? Yes, we look at the scriptures as a whole. Yes, we come in confidence. Yes, perfect love casts out fear. Yes, we have to conduct ourselves in fear. In fact, the scriptures go so far as to say of unbelievers. It is the unbelievers of whom the scripture speaks when it says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. The unbeliever doesn't know the fear of the Lord. They may walk in some fear, fear of an impending doom that they can't quite identify, fear because the law itself restrains evil in society because there's a certain fear. But it's almost like a fear of he who must not be named or a fear of something that they can't quite put a title on. So there's a fear, but that's not a fear of God. It's a fear of not getting what they want. It's a fear of someone else being stronger than them. It's a fear of failure. I don't know. It's a fear of all kinds of things, but it's not the fear of God in the sense that we fear God. There is no fear of God before their eyes, but for the believer. In 2 Corinthians 5, in Revelation 11, it is believers who are identified as those who know the fear of the Lord. And so there must be some room in our theology of our understanding of the person of God to conduct ourselves in fear. And it's not just Peter that speaks this way, because Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 11 says, Let us perfect holiness in the fear of God. He tells the people, conduct yourselves in fear. Let's perfect holiness in the fear of God. So it's not even just one author of Scripture or one place in Scripture. It is a theme. Must be room in our theology. Yes, it is not a fear of judgment for the believer. And we see that in 1 John chapter 4. But yet here in our text, God is pictured as a judge. What do we do with that? I think he is pictured here as a judge, reminding us of his unchanging character and the authority of his being. He is seated upon the throne. He is the judge whom all men will have to give an answer for. Thank God he's given us an answer. So when we stand before him and we plead the blood of Christ, we don't have the fear of judgment, but he is still the judge. You know, there's, I have no way of explaining this completely. Totally inadequate. I don't fully get it. But, you know, the sun... The sun's pretty powerful. I've read a lot of articles lately about we're building a fusion reactor to try to mimic the sun so we can somehow harness energy. And the sun is something like a million degrees Fahrenheit in the core. You know, you would not have to set off from here towards the sun and go very far before you would just burst into flame and be gone. That's awesome. That's fearsome. But let's suppose some smart guy, you know, Elon Musk or somebody who knows something about space, develops a special suit. And now you can travel and you can enter into the sun. Isn't that amazing? But isn't the sun still the sun? Isn't it still fearsome? Isn't it still truly awesome to behold? And boy, don't let that suit fail you. Okay, well, our God is a consuming fire. Okay, we have a special suit. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He has given us... Clothes for the wedding banquet. 
so that we might enter in to the chamber of the king. But the king hadn't changed. <laughs> even the creatures that we saw in Revelation as Seth was preaching through there, even the creatures that surround his throne, creatures that seem a lot higher and holier than we are, who have never sinned with all the six wings, and what do they do? Cover their eyes because of the glory of God. Cover their feet, kind of symbolic or, or a picture of covering their uncleanness in the presence of him who is fearful. There's got to be room in your theology for the fear of God somehow, somehow. And changing the word fear to reverence, in my opinion, is a disservice. Okay, it certainly covers that connotation, but here is talking about trembling. We're talking fear. So it's a disservice, but we're more comfortable there. So it makes our idea of God more tame and more comfortable. And so we don't mind talking about, well, we're supposed to revere God. We enter with reverence. But he is awesome in the fullest sense of the word, like the sun, like a volcano, like the earth being rent in two. (laughs) He's awesome. There has to be room for a real fear. There's great advantages to fear. I went and perused through the Psalms looking for fear. And we see all kinds of good associated with the fear of the Lord. Uh, the fear of the Lord brings long life. Really? Isn't that nice? You know, everybody's afraid of dying, are we not? The fear of the Lord brings long life. The fear of the Lord produces or gives showers upon people, loving kindness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The psalmist valued fear so much that he even asked God to teach him to fear him more because he saw a great advantage there. I wonder if the church individuals, church corporately, do we have the heart to ask God to teach us once again to fear him as we ought to? Because that is lacking. We have some denominational squabbles going on, and I swear it's because we're more afraid of the world than we are of the Lord. We need to know the fear of God. Even as believers. You know, I was afraid of my dad when I should have been. And the fear of my father kept me from some great sins and stupidities. I never doubted my father's love for me or that he was on my side. There has to be a place for an understanding of the fear of the Lord and the advantages that it brings. In the preaching of the new covenant, Jeremiah starts in 31, goes on into Jeremiah 32, and I'm actually going to turn there and read this. I found this this week. Love it. Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 38, They shall be my people. This is God calling. They will be my people. Though I've sent them into exile, and though I'm working in some discipline here to teach them some lessons, they will be my people. They will be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me, always, for their own good. (laughs) For their own good, and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, so that they will not turn away from me. Fear, doesn't that seem expulsive? When we're afraid, we want to turn around and run? He will put the fear of God in you that you won't turn away from him. There's got to be room in your theology for some fear of God to your great, great advantage. We are Fear actually draws us to it, almost like moths to a flame. (laughs) Only the flame consumes the moth, and yet they're drawn to it. The fear of the Lord should draw us to the Lord somehow, and we will not be consumed because we're trusting in our Lord and Savior, but yet drawn. But even in our delight... In being drawn, there's room for trembling because our Father is fearsome. 
Now, to this command that we are to walk in the fear of the Lord, conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord, to this command is added the reminder, as if we needed reminded, we do, we do, because we're so thick-headed and slow to believe, is added the reminder that we have been redeemed. To be redeemed is to be bought with a price. And we have been bought with a great price. We've not been bought with silver and gold, which is representative of anything and everything that the world holds dear. Things which are perishable. Things which are perishable. It won't last. Isn't it amazing how quickly a new car gets chipped? <laughs> and then, then we're frustrated. You know, clothes fade. Whatever. The house needs painted again. It's all perishable. But these things are things of value, are they not? They don't last. We have not been bought with those kinds of things, but with the blood of Christ as of a lamb spotless and unblemished. Not with silver or gold. And we have not been kidnapped from anything that is good because it says we've been redeemed from our futile way of life that we inherited from our forefathers. We've been rescued out of the drudgery of life to be given new life and a future. We've been redeemed with the blood of Christ, priceless. So as if we needed motivation. (laughs) There's so much in this for us But if you can't even think of that, then think of what God has paid for you. Because not to walk in holiness, to not to walk in the fear of the Lord, is to make light of, to show contempt for the blood of Christ, which God has given for you. And if you need to be reminded of that, to walk in holiness, to emulate your Father, then hear it. Hear it. That's why God speaks it, for your good. Finally, our last commandment. Fervently want, love another from the heart. I'm down in verse 22. Fervently love another from the heart. This is actually, I think, kind of a difficult translation. We won't spend a whole lot of time on it. Since you have, in obedience to your truth, purified your souls, it makes it sound as if you've saved yourself there somehow. You made yourself holy. That's not the case. This is simply saying, speaking to people who have believed in the gospel and the call to repent and believe, who then have been, by the blood of Christ, purified. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, or been purified in your souls because of the grace of God, the proper response to that is is a sincere love of the brethren. Or actually, the result of that is a sincere love of the brethren. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be honest here. I don't find people lovable. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Don't get me wrong. Some people are lovable, but we tend to love the people who love us. We tend to love the people who are like us. You know, or we tend to at least show some favor to somebody who is of a benefit or an advantage to us. You know, that's our sinful selves. But when God saves us, he puts us into a family. He gives us a love of the brethren. He says, you have, been, you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. It's like the result. And it is miraculous. It's miraculous. You, you, you know, you look around. There's all kinds of different backgrounds. In, in, in like the political division of our country right now, you realize we have people here from like every corner of the map? You can't tell me we don't disagree on some things. And yet when I look out here, I do. I can say it honestly. I do love you. I do. It's amazing. But in me, that's miraculous. It is. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm using you as an example. You all are very lovable people. So don't, don't, don't come egg my house. <laughs> You're very lovable people. But the call and the command here is that since you have been gifted with this love of the brethren as part of the grace of God in your life, he then goes on and commands you, so fervently love one another from the heart. 
It's interesting. There's a change in words here. The first love used is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it's a brotherly love that we've been given. But there's an intensification as we get to the second love because it uses the word agape for love. And agape is the love which speaks of self-sacrificing love. It's the love of John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He gave this thing of precious price, this person that he loved before all others, that which he is related to from before the foundations of the world, he gave for you. It's a self-sacrificing kind of love. So we've been given a love of the brethren, but now we are to do it that much more. Give yourselves to it. And here I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. We received word this week even of an act of love from one member to another member, and I didn't even know they had a need. I heard last minute that there was going to be a surgery or something going on, and yet somebody visited and provided a meal and prayed with and everything. That's loving one another. Taking time out of your schedule. Fervently loving one another from the heart. Keep it up. Do it more and more. Look for opportunities to serve one another in this way. You've been granted a love of the brethren as part of this salvation which God is working out in you. Now love each other fervently. Go after one another. Find the needs, identify them, find the lonely people, and be a friend. You know, it doesn't take much. Fervently love one another from the heart. Now, in conclusion, if there's anybody here tempted to think that this is a teaching or that this is a legalistic teaching, I I have no choice but to address that because that is the common accusation. I mean, I've just given you a whole bunch of lists of do's. Do's and don'ts, right? That's all this is. That's all holiness is. What I can do, what I can't do. And that's just not fair. Not fair. Love that. Fair is where you, the fair is where you buy the cotton candy is what we say in my house. Okay, I don't want to hear it. It's not fair. No, this is not what you do to gain acceptance to God. If you've been paying attention, this complete salvation is something God has done in you. And this sanctification, this transformation of your character (laughs) is his work too. Let me point you back to the bulletin this morning. Our affirmation of faith. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. An act of God's grace. There's actually a question in between there that says, what is adoption? And adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Then we get to sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. The act of God's free grace. The act of God's free grace. The work of God's free grace. Is there a difference between those? Yes. Sanctification is different than justification. Is there a similarity there between those? Yes. It is all of God's free grace. Your sanctification is the work of God. It is part of this complete salvation. He is cleaning you up. You don't need to take a bath to come to him. He's bathing you. He's cleaning you. He's transforming you. Do you realize what he's doing? He's making you free to be that which you could not be before. You were not free to be holy. You were lost in your sin. You weren't free to love God. You loved yourself. We all worship something. We worship ourselves. You weren't free to love the brethren because you were not them and because we're too self-centered. We don't truly love others as we ought to. In all these things, we were not free to do it. He is setting you free. And there will come a day. (laughs) You're going to be free. You still struggle with sin. You still struggle with hearing the wrong voices. He's at work. okay. But in the end, 
you won't even be able to sin anymore. Now see, even there, even there in that freedom, is there something you can't do? Yeah, yeah, you can't sin anymore. But that's freedom. That's a complete salvation. He is setting you free. These are all an act of God's free grace. Uh, A theologian, Charles Hodge, says that these are not Christian virtues as if produced by us, but they are graces given by God. John Calvin says these are not excellencies to be wrought by ourselves, but favors bestowed through Christ and for Christ's sake. These are the fruits of the Spirit. These are part of our complete salvation. So why does God do it this way? Because God created us this way. He has ordained it that it is in response to the preaching of the word that his people are saved. And it is in response to his word that we will persevere in the new creation, the believing heart. The believing heart. Not the unbelieving heart you were, the believing heart. You know what one of the earliest and consistent signs of true salvation is? Your attitude towards the word of God. Absolutely. This new creation, this believing heart, hears the voice of the Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. We embrace the promises. We yield obedience to the commands. We tremble at the threatenings, whatever it takes. And as Philippians 2 tells us, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, too willing to work for his good pleasure. Pray with me. Father, You have given us ears to hear and eyes to see. You have changed our hearts and our affections. You have renewed our wills that we might make the good choice. But Lord, any part we play in this is because of your act. And we praise you. We worship you. We thank you. Take these words this morning, I pray. Instruct us, rebuke us, encourage us, strengthen us, feed us. Do all according to your will, Lord, for your glory and for our good. And we ask these things in the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.